Chapter Four of Deephaven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush in Marquette, Michigan, July 2008. Deephaven by Sarah Orrin Jewett. Chapter Four, Deephaven Society. It was curious to notice, in this quaint little fishing village by the sea, how clearly the gradations of society were defined. The place prided itself most upon having been long ago the residence of one Governor Chantry, who was a rich shipowner, an East India merchant, and whose fame and magnificence were almost fabulous. It was a never-ceasing regret that the house should have burned down after he died, and there is no doubt that if it were still standing it would rival any ruin of the old world. The elderly people, though laying claim to no slight degree of present consequence, modestly ignored it, and spoke with pride of the grand way in which life was carried on by their ancestors, the Deephaven families of old times. I think Kate and I were assured at least a hundred times that Governor Chantry kept a valet, and his wife, Lady Chantry, kept a maid, and that the governor had an uncle in England who was a baronet. And I believe this must have been why our friends felt so deep an interest in the affairs of the English nobility. They no doubt felt themselves entitled to seats near the throne itself. There were formerly five families who kept their coaches in Deephaven. There were balls at the governor's, and regal entertainments at other of the grand mansions. There is not a really distinguished person in the country who will not prove to have been directly or indirectly connected with Deephaven. We were shown the cellar of the Chantry House, and the terraces, and a few clumps of lilacs, and the grand rows of elms. There are still two of the governor's warehouses left, but his ruined wharves are fast disappearing, and are almost deserted, except by small barefooted boys who sit on the edges to fish for sea-perch when the tide comes in. There is an imposing monument in the burying-ground to the great man and his amiable consort. I am sure that if there were any surviving relatives of the governor, they would receive in Deephaven far more deference than is consistent with the principles of a republican government. But the family became extinct long since, and I have heard, though it is not a subject that one may speak of lightly, that the sons were unworthy their noble descent, and came to inglorious ends." there were still remaining a few representatives of the old families, who were treated with much reverence by the rest of the townspeople, although they were, like the conies of scripture, a feeble folk. Deephaven is utterly out of fashion. It never recovered from the effects of the embargo of 1807, and a sandbar has been steadily filling in the mouth of the harbor. Though the fishing gives what occupation there is for the inhabitants of the place, it is by no means sufficient to draw recruits from abroad. But nobody in Deephaven cares for excitement, and if someone once in a while has the low taste to prefer a more active life, he is obliged to go elsewhere in search of it, and is spoken of afterward with kind pity. I well remember the widow Moses said to me, in speaking of a certain misguided nephew of hers, I never could see what could a sought him out to leave so many privileges, and go way off to Lynn, with all them children, too. Why, they lived here no more than a cable lengths from the meeting-house. 
There were two schooners owned in town, and Bajah Molly and Joe Sands owned a trawl. There were some schooners and a small brig slowly going to pieces by the wharves, and indeed all Deephaven looked more or less out of repair. All along shore one might see dories and wherries and whaleboats, which had been left to die a lingering death. There is something piteous to me in the sight of an old boat. If one I had used much and cared for were past its usefulness, I should say good-bye to it, and have it towed out to sea and sunk. It never should be left to fall to pieces above high-water mark. Even the commonest fishermen felt a satisfaction, and seemed to realize their privilege in being residents of Deephaven. But among the nobility and gentry there lingered a fierce pride in their family and town records, a hardly concealed contempt and pity for people who were obliged to live in other parts of the world. There were acknowledged to be a few disadvantages, such as living nearly a dozen miles from the railway, but, as Miss Anera Carew said, the tone of Deephaven society has always been very high, and it was very nice that there had never been any manufacturing element introduced. She could not feel too grateful herself that there was no disagreeable foreign population. But, said Kate one day, wouldn't you like to have some pleasant new people brought into town? Certainly, my dear, said Miss Anera, rather doubtfully. I have always been public-spirited, but then we always have guests in summer, and I am growing old. I should not care to enlarge my acquaintance to any great extent. Miss Anera and Mrs. Dent had lived gay lives in their younger days, and were interested and connected with the outside world more than any of our Deephaven friends but they were quite contented to stay in their own house, with their books and letters and knitting, and they carefully read little, and the new magazine, as they called the Atlantic. The Carews were very intimate with the minister and his sister, and there were one or two others who belonged to this set. There was Mr. Joshua Dorsey, who wore his hair in a queue, was very deaf, and carried a ponderous cane, which had belonged to his venerated father, a much taller man than he. He was polite to Kate and me, but we never knew him much. He went to play whist with the Carews every Monday evening, and commonly went out fishing once a week. He had begun the practice of law, but he had lost his hearing, and at the same time his lady love had inconsiderately fallen in love with somebody else, after which he retired from active business life. He had a fine library, which he invited us to examine. He had many new books but they looked shockingly overdressed in their fresher bindings, beside the old brown volumes of essays and sermons, and lighter works in many-volume editions. A prominent link in society was Widow Tully, who had been the much-respected housekeeper of old Captain Manning for forty years. When he died, he left her the use of his house and family pew, besides an annuity. The existence of Mr. Tully seemed to be a myth, during the first of his widow's residence in town, she had been much affected when obliged to speak of him, and always represented herself as having seen better days, and as being highly connected. But she was apt to be ungrammatical when excited, and there was a whispered tradition that she used to keep a toll-bridge in a town in Connecticut, though the mystery of her previous state of existence will probably never be solved. She wore mourning for the captain, which would have befitted his widow, and patronized the townspeople conspicuously, while she herself was treated with much condescension by the Carews and Lorimers. 
she occupied on the whole much the same position that mrs betty barker did in cranford and indeed kate and i were often reminded of that estimable town we heard that kate's aunt miss brandon had never been appreciative of mrs tully's merits and that since her death the others had received mrs tully into their society rather more it seemed as if all the clocks in deephaven and all the people with them had stopped years ago and the people had been doing over and over what they had been busy about during the last week of their unambitious progress their clothes had lasted wonderfully well and they had no need to earn money when there was so little chance to spend it indeed there were several families who seemed to have no more visible means of support than a balloon there were no young people whom we knew though a number used to come to church on sunday from the inland farms or the country as we learned to say there were children among the fishermen's families at the shore but a few years will see deephaven possessed by two classes instead of the time-honored three as for our first sunday at church it must be in vain to ask you to imagine our delight when we heard the tuning of a bass viol in the gallery just before service we pressed each other's hands most tenderly looked up at the singers seats and then trusted ourselves to look at each other it was more than we had hoped for there were also a violin and sometimes a flute and a choir of men and women singers though the congregation were expected to join in the psalm singing the first hymn was the lord our god is full of might the winds obey his will to the tune of st anne's it was all so delightfully old-fashioned our pew was a square pew and was by an open window looking seaward we also had a view of the entire congregation and as we were somewhat early we watched the people come in with great interest the deephaven aristocracy came with stately step up the aisle this was all the chance there was for displaying their unquestioned dignity in public many of the people drove to church in wagons that were low and old and creaky with worn buffalo robes over the seat and some hay tucked underneath for the sleepy undecided old horse some of the younger farmers and their wives had high shiny wagons with tall horsewhips which they sometimes brought into church and they drove up to the steps with a consciousness of being conspicuous and enviable they had a bashful look when they came in and for a few minutes after they took their seats they evidently felt that all eyes were fixed upon them but after a little while they were quite at their ease and looked critically at the new arrivals the old folks interested us most do you notice how many more old women there are than old men whispered kate to me and we wondered if the husbands and brothers had been drowned and if it must not be sad to look at the blue sunshiny sea beyond the marshes if the far-away white sails reminded them of some ships that had never sailed home into deephaven harbor or of fishing boats that had never come back to land the girls and young men adorned themselves in what they believed to be the latest fashion but the elderly women were usually relics of old times in manner and dress they wore to church thin soft silk gowns that must have been brought over from the seas years upon years before the wide collars fastened with mourning pins holding a lock of hair they had big black bonnets some of them with stiff capes such as kate and i had not seen before since our childhood they treasured large rusty lace veils of scraggly pattern and wore sometimes on pleasant sundays white china crepe shawls with attenuated fringes and there were two or three of these shawls in the congregation which had been dyed black 
and gave an aspect of meekness and general unworthiness to the aged wearer. They clung and drooped about the figure in such a hopeless way. We used to notice often the most interesting scarves, without which no Deephaven woman considered herself in full dress. Sometimes there were red India scarves in spite of its being hot weather. But our favorite ones were long stripes of silk, embroidered along the edges and at the ends with dismal-colored floss in old patterns. I think there must have been a fashion once in Deephaven of working these scarves, and I should not be surprised to find that it was many years before the fashion of working samplers came about. Our friends always wore black mitts on warm Sundays, and many of them carried neat little bags of various designs on their arms, containing a precisely folded pocket handkerchief and a frugal lunch of caraway seeds or red and white peppermints. I should like you to see, with your own eyes, Widow Ware and Miss Experience Hall, two old sisters whose personal appearance we delighted in, and whom we saw feebly approaching down the street this first Sunday morning under the shadow of the two last members of an otherwise extinct race of parasols. There were two or three old men who sat near us. They were sailors. There was something unmistakable about a sailor, and they had a curiously ancient, uncanny look, as if they might have belonged to the crew of the Mayflower, or even have cruised about with the Northmen in the times of Harold Harfager and his comrades. They had been blown about by so many winter winds, so browned by summer suns and wet by salt spray, that their hands and faces looked like leather, with a few deep folds instead of wrinkles. They had pale blue eyes, very keen and quick. Their hair looked like the fine seaweed which clings to the kelp roots and mussel shells in little locks. These friends of ours sat solemnly at the heads of their pews, and looked unflinchingly at the minister, when they were not dozing, and they sang with voices like the howl of the wind, with an occasional deep note or two. Have you never seen faces that seemed old-fashioned? Many of the people in Deephaven Church looked as if they must be, if not supernaturally old, exact copies of their remote ancestors. I wonder if it is not possible that the features and expressions may be almost perfectly reproduced. These faces were not modern American faces, but belonged rather to the days of the early settlement of the country, the old colonial times. We often heard quaint words and expressions which we never had known anywhere else but in old books. There was a great deal of sea-lingo in use. Indeed, we learned a great deal ourselves, unconsciously, and used it afterward to the great amusement of our friends. But there were also many peculiar provincialisms, and among the people who lived on the lonely farms inland we often noticed words we had seen in Chaucer, and studied out at school in our English literature class. Everything in Deephaven was more or less influenced by the sea, the minister spoke oftenest of Peter and his fishermen companions, and prayed most earnestly every Sunday morning for those who go down to the sea in ships. He made frequent allusions and drew numberless illustrations of a similar kind for his sermons, and indeed I am in doubt whether, if the Bible had been written wholly in inland countries, it would have been much valued in Deephaven. The singing was very droll, for there was a majority of old voices, which had seen their best days long before, and the bass viol was excessively noticeable, and apt to be a little ahead of the time the singers kept, while the violin lingered after. 
Somewhere, on the other side of the church, we heard an acute voice, which rose high above all the rest of the congregation, sharp as a needle, and slightly cracked, with a limitless supply of breath. It rose and fell gallantly, and clung long to the high notes of Dundee. It was like the wail of the banshee, which sounds clear to the fated hearer above all other noises. We afterward became acquainted with the owner of this voice, and were surprised to find her a meek widow, who was like a thin black beetle in her pathetic cypress veil and big black bonnet. She looked as if she had forgotten who she was, and spoke with an apologetic whine. But we heard she had a temper as high as her voice, and as much to be dreaded as the equinoctial gale. Near the church was the parsonage where Mr. Lorimer lived, and the old Lorimer house not far behind was occupied by Miss Rebecca Lorimer. Some stranger might ask the question why the minister and his sister did not live together, but you would have understood it at once after you had lived for a little while in town. They were very fond of each other, and the minister dined with Miss Rebecca on Sundays, and she passed the day with him on Wednesdays. And they ruled their separate households with decision and dignity. I think Mr. Lorimer's house showed no signs of being without a mistress, any more than his sister's betrayed the want of a master's care and authority. The Carews were very kind friends of ours, and had been Miss Brandon's best friends. We heard that there had always been a coolness between Miss Brandon and Miss Lorimer, and that, though they exchanged visits and were always polite, there was a chill in the politeness. And one would never have suspected them of admiring each other at all. We had the whole history of the trouble, which dated back scores of years, from Miss Onera Carew, but we always took pains to appear ignorant of the feud, and I think Miss Lorimer was satisfied that it was best not to refer to it, and to let bygones be bygones. It would not have been true Deephaven courtesy to prejudice Kate against her grand aunt, and Miss Rebecca cherished her dislike in silence. Which gave us a most grand respect for her, since we knew she thought herself in the right, though I think it never had come to an open quarrel between these majestic aristocrats. Miss Anera Carew and Mr. Dick, and their elder sister, Mrs. Dent, had a charmingly sedate and quiet home in the old Carew house. Mrs. Dent was ill a great deal while we were there, but she must have been a very brilliant woman, and was not at all dull when we knew her. She had outlived her husband. And her children, and she had, several years before our summer there, given up her own home, which was in the city, and had come back to Deephaven. Miss Anera, dear Miss Anera, had been one of the brightest, happiest girls, and had lost none of her brightness and happiness by growing old. She had lost none of her fondness for society, though she was so contented in quiet Deephaven, and I think she enjoyed Kate's and my stories of our pleasures. As much as we did hers of old times. We used to go to see her almost every day. Mr. Dick, as they called their brother, had once been a merchant in the East Indies, and there were quantities of curiosities and most beautiful china, which he had brought and sent home, which gave the house a character of its own. He had been very rich and had lost some of his money, and then he came home and was still considered to possess princely wealth by his neighbors. He had a great fondness for reading and study, which had not been lost sight of during his business life, and he spent most of his time in his library. He and Mr. Lorimer had their differences of opinion about certain points of theology, 
and this made them much fonder of each other's society, and gave them a great deal of pleasure, for after every series of arguments, each was sure that he had vanquished the other, or there were alternate victories and defeats which made life vastly interesting and important. Miss Carew and Mrs. Dent had a great treasury of old brocades and laces and ornaments, which they showed us one day, and told us stories of the wearers, or, if they were their own, there were always some reminiscences which they liked to talk over with each other and with us. I never shall forget the first evening we took tea with them. It impressed us very much, and yet nothing wonderful happened. Tea was handed round by an old-fashioned maid, and afterward we sat talking in the twilight, looking out at the garden. It was such a delight to have tea served in this way. I wonder that the fashion has been almost forgotten. Kate and I took much pleasure in choosing our tea poise. Hers had a mandarin parading on the top, and mine a flight of birds in a pagoda, and we often used them afterward, for Miss Onera asked us to come to tea whenever we liked. A stupid common country town, someone dared to call Deephaven in a letter once, and how bitterly we resented it. That was a house where we might find the best society, and the most charming manners and good breeding, and if I were asked to tell you what I mean by the word lady, I should ask you to go, if it were possible, to call upon Miss Onera Carew. After a while the elder sister said, "'My dears, we always have prayers at nine, for I have to go upstairs early nowadays.' And then the servants came in, and we read solemnly the King of Glory psalm, which I have always liked best, and then Mr. Dick read the church prayers, the form of prayer to be used in families. We stayed later to talk with Miss Onera, after we had said good-night to Mrs. Dent, and we told each other, as we went home in the moonlight down the quiet street, how much we had enjoyed the evening, for somehow the house and the people had nothing to do with the present, or the hurry of modern life. I have never heard that psalm since, without its bringing back that summer night in Deephaven, the beautiful quaint old room, and Kate and I feeling so young and worldly by contrast, the flickering, shaded light of the candles, the old book, and the voices that said Amen. There were several other fine old houses in Deephaven beside this and the Brandon house, though that was rather the most imposing. There were two or three which had not been kept in repair, and were deserted, and, of course, they were said to be haunted, and we were told of their ghosts and why they walked and when. From some of the local superstitions Kate and I have vainly endeavored ever since to shake ourselves free. There was a most heathenish fear of doing certain things on Friday, and there were countless signs in which we still have confidence. When the moon is very bright, and other people grow sentimental, we only remember that it is a fine night to catch hake. End of chapter 4